Let's start with Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 through 11 this morning. Uh, there's these two couples having dinner together at, at the home of one, and the two husbands, after they were done, kept staying, at, stayed there at the kitchen table, drinking their coffee and talking. The two wives went into the living room, sat on the couch, and one of the men said to the other one, my wife, this is the craziest thing. She wants me to start taking this herbal supplement, something or another that's supposed to improve your memory. I don't need anything like that. I've got a mind like a steel trap. And the other guy said, well, so what is this thing called? And he said, oh, I don't know. It's, uh, well, actually, um, what's the name of that flower? You know, it's got a long stem and thorns and we give it away at Valentine's Day. And the other guy goes, a rose? And he said, yeah, that's it. Hey, Rose, what's the name of that supplement that I'm supposed to... So I don't know why this is. And those of you who are married can probably testify to this. Most men I know are so agreeable, they'll take advice from anyone. Total stranger could come up and say, hey, you should try this kind of coffee. And they'll go out and order it, right? They'll take advice from anybody except their wife. Why is that? This is not what the sermon's about. Don't worry, I'm not trying to start any marital fights, but it's just the way it is. It's part of our sin nature. And I know it's annoying for wives. I can only imagine how annoying it is. But you know what? There is some form of skepticism, which is good. There are doubts that are healthy. For instance, my, my father-in-law, who passed away in 2010, one of the most successful people I've ever met. I mean, he was a success at everything he did, at athletics, at, at business, at, at his family, and his walk with the Lord. Everything he did, he was good at. And he had a credo that he shared with his kids, with everyone he knew. He said, believe none of what you hear and only half of what you see. And that's good advice especially if you're on social media. It's very good advice. <laughs> Believe none of what you hear and only half of what you see. But there is a problem, right? What about when we doubt the things of God? What about when we doubt the word of God? What about when we doubt his love, his wisdom, his power, his existence? Some of you have been through this, and some of you, maybe you're still young in the faith and you haven't gotten to this point yet, but I think every Christian at some point goes through a point of time where they think, okay, I don't, I don't understand this. Why, why did this person die even though I prayed and prayed and prayed that they would be spared? It wasn't their time, Lord. Why did they die? Lord, I wanted this job. This was the perfect job for me. I, that's all I wanted. I would, have, I would have done anything, and you gave it to somebody else. Lord, do you, do you really love me? Or do you love me, but you're just not as powerful as I thought? Is that the problem? We go through this, right? We see something on the news. We say, how could a loving, powerful God allow such evil to exist in the world? Or maybe we, we doubt his mercy. I think many of us would, would testify. We, we think about some of the things we've done and the shame we feel over the things we've done. And we think, okay, I know that the Bible says that God forgives and that God loves everyone, but there's no way he loves me maybe tolerates me, but there's no way he delights in someone who's done the things that I've done, who's capable of the things I'm capable of. And then there are those times, maybe when you even doubt his existence, when, for instance, you, you, you're reading scripture and you see what seem to be contradictions in the text, or, or you read a, a teaching that, that just doesn't sound like it could be true, like it doesn't, it doesn't add up, or, or maybe you know some things through your study of science that don't seem to square with what scripture teaches or, or you have an unbelieving friend who asks you some questions and they really stump you and you think, well, I mean, maybe he's smarter than I am. He's smart and I'm not and he doesn't believe, so maybe I'm, maybe I'm the dumb one. Well, what does God do? 
when we have these doubts. Because I got bad news for you. He knows we have those thoughts. Even if you keep them all to yourself and you think, okay, I can't say this to anyone. They would judge me. Well, God knows. So what does God do when we have these doubts, when we have these questions? Well, the good news is we can see right here in the scriptures what he does. We see an example. And of all people, it's John the Baptist. Yes, one of the greatest people who's ever lived, one of the boldest, probably the boldest person in human history aside from Jesus himself. And yet there came a time when he deeply doubted who Jesus was. And we're going to see that this morning. So by way, by way of background, John was a prophet of the Lord. He preached. He told people the truth. If you're a prophet of the Lord, you're not a popular person because you tell people what they don't want to hear. Now there was uh, the king of the region of Galilee, the ruler, I should say, because he wasn't actually a king. He was, he was the puppet ruler of the Romans, but his name was Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. Everyone in Galilee knew that Herod had stolen his own brother's wife. Now, you talk to anybody. They don't have to be religious at all. They'd say, okay, that's pretty low. That's dirty. That's wrong. But in the Jewish scriptures, in the law of Moses, that was punishable by death. And yet nobody says anything in Herod's time. Nobody's going to speak out. Why? Because he's got the power of Rome at his back. He's the son of Herod the Great, one of the most ruthless, maniacal, uh, paranoid dictators ever. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I'm not going to speak out against that guy. But John did. John had the audacity. John had the boldness to declare before everybody, we must hold this king accountable because the people of God, anybody for that matter, deserves a ruler who is a man of character. And for that, John was thrown into prison. And there, deep in the bowels of that dungeon, he began to doubt. And we see it in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you see. And here, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, People who dress in soft clothing are, are, wear, are found in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So there are two things in this story, two things that we see about what God does when we doubt. Two truths. Number one, Jesus is telling us there is room for questioning. There is room for questioning. He is not offended. Notice again, John's question is very direct. Are you the one? Are you really the one we've been waiting for? I've been preparing the way for you, but is it, could it be that maybe you're preparing the way for somebody else, that we have to wait even longer? And that's an astonishing thing for John to ask. Because John... Aside from Mary, the mother of Jesus has known Jesus longer than anybody on earth. Remember when John was just a, a, a baby in his mother's womb and Mary comes to visit. 
just after she's heard from the angel that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. No one on earth knows but her. She walks through that door. She greets her cousin Elizabeth, John's mother, and little prenatal John hears the voice of Mary and says, aha, that's the mother of my Lord, and leaps in his mother's womb. So he's known Jesus all this time, his whole life. He spent his life preparing the way for Jesus, telling people, he's coming after me. He's, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. I baptize in water. He's gonna baptize in fire. And then by the way, he baptizes Jesus and hears the voice of almighty God from on high. I bet if you took every person in history who's heard the audible voice of God and put them in a room, they'd fit in this room. I mean, it's not a big number of people. John, heard the voice of God say, this is my son who I love. He saw the Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove and land on him. And by the way, John's over the past several months has been saying to people, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm not the show. I'm not the one. I must decrease so that he can increase. But now he says, are you really the one? Can we be sure of this? Now, Matthew, very pointedly, doesn't tell us what caused John to doubt. Was it his life circumstances? Was it the fact that Jesus wasn't doing some of the things he thought the Messiah would do? We don't know. We could speculate, but it wouldn't do any good. All we need to know is that even someone as faithful as John doubted. So it will happen to you at some point as well, if it hasn't already. But the even more important thing to know is Jesus's reaction. Because you expect him because Jesus is human, just like us. You expect Jesus to be angry, to be offended, to be defensive. I mean, if, if, you're, why, if you're married, if your spouse came to you and said, okay, are you really faithful to me? I mean, really, really faithful? Wouldn't you be offended? Wouldn't you be upset? I would. What reason do you have to doubt me, I'd say? And she would say the same to me. And yet Jesus hears this question, and he's not angry, and he's not defensive. And he, he gives John reasons to believe. And then he turns around and lavishly praises John. I, I got to tell you, out of all the compliments someone can get, being called the greatest human being who's ever lived by the Son of God himself, that's got to top the scales, right? I mean, there's, no, there's nothing better than that. You know, for a fat guy, you don't sweat much. Now, that doesn't kind of quite rank with you are the greatest human being who's ever lived uh, by the Son of God himself. So there's room for questioning. And the sad thing is the church, us, we haven't been good at allowing that. We haven't really given off that vibe to the world, have we? Dave Kinnaman is a researcher. Uh, he worked for the Barnett organization uh, and, and surveyed Christians. One of the things he's been researching for the past 10 years very diligently is why are people leaving church? Why, why are young people especially saying, okay, I'm done, I'm, I'm out, I'm, I, I don't need church anymore? And one of the answers he consistently gets, and this is a quote, is, I have real doubts and questions about faith, and I don't feel like my church is a safe place to ask those questions. And that ought to break your heart. Because here's the thing, and not just, not just because young people are leaving, not just because young people feel unwelcome, here's what ought to really break your heart. You know what you call it when you have an organization where you're told, okay, keep your doubts to yourself. Don't ask questions. Believe what you're told. The man up front is right all the time. You know what you call that? That's not a church, that's a cult. That is the very definition of a cult. So if you ever encounter that kind of uh, experience here or at another church, if God leads you somewhere else, you have to call that out. 
And it's your responsibility as a Christian to say, that's not, that's not the way a New Testament church operates. There is room for questioning. So as pastor of this church, as long as I'm here, and I'm sure after I'm gone, whenever that may be, this is true of First Baptist. You can ask questions here. You can express doubts. You will not, you will not be seen as a, a less faithful person. You will not be shunned. You will not be critiqued. Your questions are important to us because God thinks you are important and therefore you are important to us too. What do you do when you have these questions and doubts? You raise them. You bring them up. I mean, you can, you can come sit down with me or, or with one of our, our other ministers anytime. I, I like it when people send me emails because that gives me more time to do my research and figure out how to answer. But you know, let's have a conversation. That's wonderful. Even better. I've got a better idea than that. Bring it up in your life group. You know, end, of the, end of the group, Bible lesson is done. Raise your hand and say, I've got a question before we leave. This is something I've always wondered about. This is something I'm struggling with. Can you help me with this? You raising that issue is probably, you're probably gonna find out there's two or three people in the room that they also say, yeah, I've always wondered that too, but I just never had the courage to ask it. And other people in the room haven't ever thought of that, but together as y'all wrestle with the truth, as you seek the truth together, guess what? The whole group grows. The whole group grows and becomes what God meant you to be. That's why we call them life groups, by the way, and not Sunday school classes. Not that there's anything magical about the terminology. We just want to remind you every day, this is not just a weekly Bible lesson. This is a group of people who you're supposed to walk through life together with and, and follow this journey alongside and carry one another when, when someone's hurting, when someone's doubting. And that's, that's what this is for. So again, John the Baptist says, I'm not sure about you anymore, Jesus. And Jesus says, you know what? I still feel the same way about you that I did before. And that's the way Jesus feels about you too. When you express your doubts, when you express your concerns, he doesn't change his mind. Your doubts are important to him. There's room for questioning. Jesus and all the gospels never once turns down a single person who has an honest question, a single person who is honestly seeking him. There are times in the scriptures where people come to test Jesus, to try to trick him, and he's got no time for those people. But if someone comes and they're wondering and they're weak and they're struggling and they're hurting, he's always got time for them and he has time for you too. Second thing, this is the even better news. There is reason for certainty. Yes, there's room for questions, but there are answers to those questions. Good news, you seek the truth because all truth is God's truth. That's why God's not afraid of questions. That's not why God's not offended by doubts because he knows that if you follow the truth where it leads, you will end up with greater faith because the truth leads to Jesus because he is the truth, the way and the life. That's the cool thing about this story is when John shares his doubts, and I'm just guessing, I don't know, because Matthew doesn't tell us, but I'm guessing that when the disciples of John come to Jesus and they express this, everyone around probably went, oh my gosh, John doubts? And notice that Jesus doesn't say, you know what? You got a point, John. I'm, I'm not really sure who I am either. I guess I better go off and figure this out. Give me six months and I'll, I'll get back to you. No, he doesn't say that. He immediately says, you go back and tell John, I'm, I'm raising dead people. I'm curing blind people. I, I'm curing deaf people. I'm, I'm preaching to the poor. I'm doing everything the prophecies of the Old Testament said that I would. Give him the evidence. That's what he needs. 
See, the great thing about Jesus, one of many great things about Jesus is he always knew who he was. He alone never experienced doubt. So some of you are old enough to remember, many of you are not. Back in the late 80s, Martin Scorsese made a movie called The Last Temptation of Christ. And at the time, Christians lost their minds. We made the biggest mistake. We went out and protested and picketed in front of, news, in front of movie theaters. I didn't, but a lot of Christians did. And what that did was it, it gave a lot of free publicity to a terrible movie that would have died within a week. But instead, it became worldwide news and people went to see it. So I know that it's terrible because for two reasons. Number one, I had a friend in college, good friend, not a Christian, who was a big movie buff. I asked him if he'd seen the movie. He said, yes. I said, what did you think of it? He said, it's terrible. I said, why is it terrible? He really surprised me. He was an unbeliever. I thought he'd like it. He said, because when you watch this movie, the Jesus in the movie is so neurotic and so wishy-washy, Jesus couldn't have really been that way. Because if Jesus had been that way, no one would have followed him and there would be no Christianity today. I thought, that's, that's pretty profound. And so a few years later, when it came on like cable TV, so I wouldn't have to actually give my money to the people who made the movie, I watched it just for my own sort of edification. And it was, it was terrible, terrible movie. I mean, Jesus in the movie is, he's basically Woody Allen. I mean, he has no, no spine, no backbone. And, and I, I thought that's so different than the Jesus of scripture. You know why people followed Jesus? One of many reasons, because Jesus knew who he was. What people said, the first time they ever heard Jesus, we see this over and over again in the Bible, in the Gospels, when people heard Jesus for the first time, they'd walk away saying the same thing. He speaks like one with authority. And the reason they said that was preachers at that time were known for hedging their bets. Okay, so they'd stand up and they'd say, well, we're on this issue of, of what to do about an enemy. Well, Rabbi so-and-so says this and Rabbi so-and-so says that. And, and so we got to figure out a way between. Jesus just got up and said, you've heard that it was said, love your friends and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who hate you. And people would walk away saying, where does he get this from? I know it's true. I never thought of it that way. Jesus was sure of who he was. I mean, nobody goes around saying things like, I am the bread of life. You eat of me and you'll never be hungry again. I am the vine. And, and if you stick with me, you'll bear much fruit. I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you'll never die. No one says this stuff unless, as C.S. Lewis said, he's either a liar or a lunatic or he's Lord. Jesus knew who he was. There are answers with him. So I said in my first point, there's room for questioning, there's room for doubts, but there are answers where those doubts lead. So I say that to say, if you're a person with questions and with doubts, bring them up, express them, but know that God doesn't want you to stay in that, in that middle ground of, well, I just don't know. There is certainty. Seek after those answers. Find certainty. Know who he is. Don't walk in, in this in this, pure, in this constant uh, wishy-washiness, this constant doubting, but know, know the truth. So how do we do that? How do we seek? If your questions and doubts are more on the intellectual level, if it's more about, I don't understand this part of the Bible, or I, I, I don't understand uh, this teaching and how it lines up with what I understand about science, or things like that, then there are resources that I love, that I would love to recommend to you. You can email me and I'll share those with you and that will help you find truth. 
If on the other hand, your questions and doubts are more in the area of your human experience, your daily life experience, like I don't understand why God let my friend die. I don't understand why God let me get sick. I don't understand why God let this terrible event happen in the world. Then sit down and talk with someone, talk with a trusted Christian. Talk with, you can talk with one of us if you want. Again, the best thing you can do is bring it up in your life group and you all wrestle with it together and you all will grow as a result. But seek truth. See, here's the thing. I'm a dad and my kids are grown, but still, if one of my kids, one of my two kids ever got it in their heads that I didn't love them, I wouldn't want them to sit there puzzling it out in their own mind. I wouldn't want them to go to their friends and say, let me tell you what my dad did and you tell me whether he loves me or not. I'd want them to come to me and to just say, dad, I'm just not sure you love me anymore because I want them to be certain. Jesus wants you to be certain. Did you know there's a whole book of the Bible, 1 John? The purpose of it is stated. These things have been written so that you might know that you have eternal life. Not so that you might guess, not so that you might hope, not so that you might wish, so that you might know God is a far better father than me. I want my kids to be certain of how I feel about them, of who I am, and that I want what's best for them. God wants that even more for you. There is certainty. There is reason for certainty. There are answers at the end of your search, so don't quit searching. So let me address one more thing. At the end of Jesus's talk on this, in verse 11, the last thing he says is, but he who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Now, how can he say that? Because he's talking to ordinary people. He's just said that John's the greatest person ever. Then he looks at these ordinary people, farmers and housewives and merchants and little kids and says, but all of you can be even greater. All you got to do is join the kingdom. Well, what is the kingdom? Well, not to be too simplistic, but this is the real answer. The kingdom of God is wherever Jesus is king. So wherever Jesus rules, that's the kingdom. Someday the whole world, someday planet earth will be the kingdom of God because there won't be a single atom on this planet that doesn't absolutely praise him. We're not there yet, but we can look forward to it. But for now, Every time a person comes and crowns Jesus as king of their life, they are part of the kingdom and the kingdom is advancing. And so I've got to ask you, are you part of the kingdom? Now you might say, well, you know, Jeff, I got, I got saved when I was this, this old. I prayed the prayer. I, I got baptized. I, I did all that stuff and I'm, I'm happy for you. And I'm not doubting your salvation. That's not what I'm asking. Because I think it's very possible to come to God and to genuinely confess your sins and say, I need your grace to save me and mean it with all your heart. And if that's true, you're saved, but still not have Jesus as king. Still be trying to live your own life. And I know it's possible because I've seen it happen for you to be someone who is following after Jesus with all your heart. And then at some point, something else comes in and unseats Jesus from the throne of your life. And Jesus is a gentleman. He's not gonna, he's not gonna insist. He's gonna let you have your way. And so whatever that is, whether it's your, your money or your power or, or your pursuit of pleasure or, or your political persuasion or whatever, whatever is the most important thing, the thing that you identify with and get charged up about and, and trust in, that's now the ruler of your life and Jesus is just a consultant and that's why you're not experiencing abundant life? So there's a lot of you I would imagine, I don't know who it is because I'm not the Holy Spirit, but there's a lot of you in this room I would imagine who need to just stop and say, okay, Jesus, I need you to claim the throne of my heart today. I need for you to be in charge. 
I'm tired of following something else. I'm tired of following myself. Do that today. That's how you find abundant life. That's how you live the life God has created you to live. So there, was, there were these two young preachers years and years ago named Chuck and Billy. They were both very bright young men, handsome, articulate, dynamic, talented. They both signed up for this uh, organization that sent them overseas to preach crusade events all over the world. And they were powerful preachers. These young guys in their early 20s were winning souls left and right. But of the two, Chuck was by far the more talented. He was smarter in an academic sense. He was also uh, more eloquent in the way he spoke. But Chuck had a dirty little secret. Chuck was starting to doubt his own beliefs, the very things he was preaching. In fact, Chuck had gotten to the point where he was pretty sure that the Christian faith was all a sham. And yet every time he got up and preached, crowds of people would come forward and give their heart to Christ. To him, that was just confirmation that it was all a lie. And one day he sat down with Billy and he, he shared his, his whole story. He said, Billy, I, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And in fact, he, he tried to convince him. He said, you need to come with me. You need to come. We need to pursue truth outside of scripture because that's where it can be found. You don't want to commit intellectual suicide, Billy. You don't want to turn off your brain and keep preaching what you know is not true. And that guy's name was Charles Templeton. And he did, in fact, leave the faith. Went on to a very successful career in journalism. He was author of several books, including one about his journey away from Christianity. Late in his life, just before he died in 2001, he was interviewed by Lee Strobel, the author of The Case for Christ. Strobel asked him, uh, so Charles, you're not a believer anymore. What, what do you think of Jesus? And here's what Charles Templeton said about Jesus. And this is a direct quote. He said, he was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. He's the most important thing in my life. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. He is the most important human being who has ever existed. And if I may put it this way, I miss him. And he began to weep. And the interview was done because he could not answer any more questions at that point. He passed away in 2001. I can only hope that he came back to Christ before that happened. But Charles Templeton's friend, Billy, was deeply affected by his friend's defection. And for a while, he began to question, you know, Chuck was smarter than me. Chuck was more gifted than me. He won all these people to Christ. Could it be that I'm wrong, that I've been living a lie? One night in his home in North Carolina, he was walking around outside in the middle of the night. It was a moonlit night. You could see where you were going. He's walking through the woods. He sees this trump, trunk of a big oak tree and for some reason, he feels led to, to pray there. He kneels at the, at the foot of that stump and begins to pray a prayer, something like this, Lord, I trust you. From this, this time forward, I, just, I trust you, whatever you say, and I'm going to preach your word, even though I don't have all the answers, even though I can't answer everybody's questions, I'm just gonna believe in you. I'm gonna trust you from this point forward. How, could he, how can you just blindly trust someone like that? Well, because not everybody in the world has died for your sins. But when someone dies in your place to bring you eternal life, you tend to say, okay, I think I can believe in you. If you love me this much, 
I think I can trust in you. I think I can believe that you won't lie to me. And that's what this young man did. His name was Billy Graham. And that was just a few weeks before he went out to Los Angeles to preach a crusade that just exploded. It lasted for weeks, became national news, cover of Time magazine. It launched a a ministry of evangelism that I don't know, I'm just guessing, we'll find out when we get to heaven, but I'm guessing has won more people to Christ than any other single person on the face of the earth. Now, you're not Billy Graham and I'm not either. We're not John the Baptist, but you don't have to be. I'm just asking, are you willing to pray a similar prayer and say, Lord, I have questions, I have doubts, I'm not the most faithful, but I trust you. Whatever you say, I'm gonna choose to believe And I'm going to believe that where I have questions, you're going to give me the answers in your good time. But in the meantime, I'm just going to trust in you and do what you say. Are you willing to pray that prayer? 